Brothers and sisters, we are continuing in our study of 2 Peter, so please turn there with me in your Bibles. 2 Peter 3 begins a really a new subject for the Apostle as he begins to remind us and encourage us regarding the coming of our Lord. Uh, 2 Peter as a whole is an apostolic book, of course, with great authority. It's from God, written by God as he moves men along by his Spirit, uh, but it's also very pastoral in its tone and its concern. Really, it encourages us, really, to grow in grace and knowledge. That would be the thesis of the book, to grow in grace and knowledge. Grace, that unmerited favor we sinners receive because of Christ's work on the cross, the simplicity of growing in that grace ought never leave us. We should always be awestruck by that fact. But we must also grow in knowledge so that becomes clearer and more understandable. That is grace. So grace and knowledge, not just grace or not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but grace and knowledge, and that's what Peter is encouraging us toward. Chapter 2, we spent several weeks looking at the apostles' righteous indignation against false teachers. It mirrored much of what the book of Jude warned about. Now we come to chapter 3, bringing a chief motivation for growing in grace and knowledge to the forefront. That is the sure coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, in fact, coming again to judge the world. Hear God's word, 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for even the complexity of these verses. I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would develop a hunger to see the Lord Jesus return, Lord, that you would Uh, cultivate this in us, that we would be expectant people, that we would be people just excited about the prospect of our Lord coming, both in temporary ways as as he comes and visits even his judgment upon mankind now, but also ultimately when he would come again to make the new heaven and the new earth. I pray, Lord, that we would rest solely and wholly on Christ in this outlook and looking forward to this day. And I pray that it would change us now, right in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I begin a study of a sermon on uh, the Lord's coming, I want to issue a few introductory statements, maybe of caution, that help guide us. Uh, Every generation that has heard or read this text has 
kind of lenses it sees through. And we certainly have lenses in our day whenever you talk about the Lord's coming. First, I want to be very, very clear from the outset uh, that the Scripture is explicit about the Lord's coming, ultimately, His second advent as we label it. First of all, you remember the Lord Jesus Himself said in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. He was preparing to go to the cross and eventually ascend into heaven. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Then he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's not figurative language. That's literal language. He will come again. Scripture is explicit. In fact, right as he is ascending into heaven, uh, the very next words that happen in the book of Acts, angel speaks saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Of course, the impetus there is to Get the people of God moving. Get the people of God about the Great Commission, about spreading the glory of God, seeing the dominion of Christ on the earth. He says, don't stand there looking up in the sky. He's going to come again. Get to work. Respond to your Savior. Be sure of Christ's coming, as the Bible promises. Also, very quickly, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come, he says. That's his prayer. Come, now. Paul believed that the Lord Jesus would come again. The very last two verses of the Bible in Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. Those are the last words of the Bible. So let's not lose, in light of all the end times mania that is out there, this fact that Christ is coming again bodily, and we believe this. We believe the scripture teaches it. We believe we get to look forward to that. Even if not in our generation, the generation we raise up now is with a view to another generation that may actually see with their own eyes Christ come. But make no mistake, all of us will see Christ soon. All of us will see Christ soon. We're not going to live that long. It's relatively short. Either we die and are with him, or he'll come in our lifetime. We all will see Christ soon. This ought to be the sure hope, the excitement we have as a believer to see our Lord, to be with our Lord, and for eternity. I want us also, in an introductory way, beware of extremes regarding end times mania. Uh, That's the only way I can think to describe it. Uh, The scriptures definitely declare the fact of Christ's glorious second advent. There's no doubt of this. Uh, The Apostles' Creed, which we recite often, reminds us that he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed, he shall come again with glory to judge. Uh, We acknowledge this. The church has always acknowledged it. I would say it's an essential of our faith that he is coming again bodily. But the purpose for revealing Christ's return is to motivate us to holy living, to call unbelievers to salvation, and ultimately, and most importantly, to bring glory to God that he is sovereign over it all. He makes it flow and he can stop it. This is what we are to get out of this understanding of the Lord's coming again. You know, the Bible really doesn't give numerous particulars. I know many books have been written about the particulars. Many charts have been drawn up. But the fact is, there are not many particulars in actuality. The Scripture speaks of a final consummation of what we know as time. The passage that I've read today out of 2 Peter, I think, fits that description. 
But somehow, you have to admit, in our day especially, an unbalanced focus on minuscule details of the years, the months, the days, all the details of the leading up to Christ's return, they have somehow become the identifying feature of the church, rather than Jesus himself in many times, many times in many places. Somehow, wildly, wildly popular books about being left behind, uh, elaborate end times charts. And if you don't believe me, when I was in college, I got one of those charts, and they're, they're cool. I mean, there's no question. There's one such chart, and this is, I mean, this scares me when I look at it now, even though I don't believe it. Wow, this is incredible. Uh, Hitler is in here, as a matter of fact. Now, there's chart upon chart like this that could be drawn up, and with one just little difference of opinion, a whole line in the chart will change. And there are lots of charts on, on this kind of thing. And I would just suggest to you that this becomes somewhat imbalanced when our focus is consistently on writing up a new chart. Every time one verse, maybe say this much of the tribulation is going to pass, the beast maybe looks like this, uh, this country's changed, so it must not be the bear now, it must be that. And then we spend all this time, and we become identified with a view of the end times rather than with Jesus. This is a caution that I would give to us as we study this passage. Because I think the passage really bears the spirit of what I'm saying here, that our focus is upon Christ, our excitement is that Christ is coming again, even though we don't know all the details. I remember when I was in college in 1991, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War happened, and I recall uh, books coming out like crazy. And I was at a school where they had a publishing company, and there were no less than 10 books that came out in the first months of that war. I found out that at least two of the books were exact reprints of books written in from the 70s after the 67 war that Israel was involved with. Uh, this is just common in popular Christian literature. I have to say it as we go into this text so that we can get recalibrated according to what the Lord is saying regarding his coming. Uh, finally, I'll say this as a caution, just to show you why it is important. It's not just something I'm putting out there to kind of chuckle at, but rather there's a friend of mine who writes a, a kind of an academic blog, and in his blog on the internet, he wrote his opinions of the end times, and they're very general, as most Reformed people give their uh, understanding of the end times, they're very general. They say exactly what the scripture says, and they don't do a whole lot of the detail filling in, and that's what he does. And so he denied the modern premillennial view of a particular rapture that happens, you know, where the cars are all driving without drivers and that kind of picture of things. It's very popular. He denied that and described instead Christ's final coming connected with the final resurrection, a very common orthodox position. And he received a response from people who were not just regular people on the internet who responded, but people are part of an organization, an evangelical organization. And one man wrote him this. He said to my friend, when the rapture of the church takes place, and mark my words it will, maybe then you will see the light. After you have been left behind, are you going to look back on all the people that you deceived who will probably be in your face at that time and hopefully repent of the false gospel that you were teaching? It's not too late to be saved during the seven-year tribulation period, but it will be harder when you hear the Christians who become Christians after the rapture of the church are being beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Hopefully you and those who partake of your beliefs will see the light before Christ comes for the church. Do you see what he's saying? You're not a believer if you don't believe this. And maybe some of you think that's crazy. I don't, there are many brothers and sisters who really believe this is an essential to faith, the very details of how Jesus will come. I'd say let's back off. Let's chill out. Let's read what Peter says. See what the scripture says. We ought to die for that, for what is really said. Growing in wisdom and knowledge, the thesis of the book is further compelled by the fact of Christ coming again. Let's look at these verses, these nine verses together, and see how they prepare us 
for Christ's coming, whether it be us going to be with him now or his coming again in glory. First, we have to know the word of God. This is a repetitious theme in this book as it is in all the epistles. Look at verse 1. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, Peter says. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You remember back in chapter 1 when I spent quite a bit of time talking about the preacher's uh, methods and how he uses reminder consistently. This is modeled for us by Peter. With no apology for reminding, for reminding, for reminding again. You just heard what I said to you remember back to chapter 1. I hope you do remember. I remember preachers, uh, uh, teachers telling us, don't always refer back to what you preached the week before. Because people might not have been there the week before. Well, the only thing I say is, you got to be there the week before. It's important because I want to remind you. In fact, my one of the great parts of my mission and my calling is to continually remind you, the people of God. And in so doing, remind myself. Constant reminders. We need it. Uh, we need it to prod us, to motivate us, to stimulate our thinking, to see our situation in light of a verse we may have heard before, but now a new situation presents itself, and the verse comes to new light, and we're reminded, and it's re- repetitious. You know, one author said that men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. This is true, and the apostle follows this as he says, the second letter I've written to you, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In fact, one other wise man said, to be desirous of novelty, that is new things, too eager to say new things, when what is needed is a repetition of eternal truths which men so quickly forget and whose significance they so often refuse to see. So we repeat for this reason. Knowing the word of God then, what has been said, what has been delivered to us once for all, constantly and consistently going over it. Look at verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In that verse, in verse 2, he's talking about the Bible. Remember, they don't have a hard copy, a bound copy of the Scripture. They have the Old Testament. They have the accounts of Christ's life, the Gospels. And now they're getting the epistles from the apostles. That's the Bible. That's what he's saying in a nutshell. Notice how he lists them. The prophets, Christ, and the apostles. That's the Old Testament, the Gospel account of Christ's life, and the epistles by the apostles. The prophets foretell of Christ. The Gospels tell of Christ. And the apostolic epistles... Bring the message of Christ to more clarity. We know this because back in Malachi, Malachi looks ahead to the final coming. He says, Behold, the day comes burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will stubble, will be stubble. That's Malachi in the Old Testament. But then Christ himself says in Matthew 24, Watch therefore, for you do not know the day our Lord is coming. The epistles. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So the scripture speaks of this. Know the scripture. Know what it says positively. Uh, Do you want to be prepared for the sure coming of Christ? Well, the way you can best be prepared is to know his word. You'll know him that way. You'll know him through what he has revealed about himself. Why is knowing him and knowing his word such a solid preparation for his coming? Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. By knowing his word and knowing him, we'll be able to differentiate between truth and error. We'll be able to discern and recognize when false teaching comes our way. We'll know when we hear something that's just not right. You got to know him. You know him by his word. Well, how do you know when something's said about your Lord if you don't know what he says about himself? 
And it takes time, brothers and sisters. You won't know it overnight. Take time. But as you come to know the word and grow in grace and knowledge, when you hear stuff that doesn't sound just right, like when there's a guy and his wife telling you about every detail that's going to happen in the end times, you're going to know, you know, that doesn't sound exactly the way the apostles put it. You're filling in some blanks there, brother. You should know that as you know the word. You'll be able to discern and reject false teaching. Look at verse 3 again, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? So if we know the word, we'll then know when we hear this kind of thing said or purported that something's wrong. First of all, a scoffer, we know this from the Old Testament, is an unbeliever, essentially, a mocker. Uh, They could be the guy in the street, they could be the person in the office next to you, your professor in college, a classmate, even a person with reverend in front of their name. But they're scoffers because they don't believe. And scoffers will come in the last days, it says. And they'll particularly deny the coming of Christ, which in essence, based on Christ's own teaching, would be denial of Christ himself. But notice it says scoffers will come in the last days. This is important we understand what is meant by last days. The biblical writers use the phrase the last days in reference to any time after the time Christ came to earth. It's not the last days meaning it's almost over completely this time-space order, but rather the last days. Jesus had been prophesied for all those hundreds of years, and he comes. Those are the former times. Now the last days are these days from the time of Jesus's coming to earth, and even now. The last days in the times of the apostles, the last days now. We'll see what days mean to God in a little bit, but recognize last days does not mean the end times, as we always say it, but rather these latest times, the times of the Messiah, the times of his kingdom, expansion even. In fact, Hebrews 1 says it so well, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the author of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews defines last days as the time of Christ coming and now, all the way now until he comes again. We're in the last days in that sense. Note what argument the scoffers use in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were for the beginning of creation. Now, do you recognize the argument? The argument is a naturalistic one. It's a very similar argument to what is used today all over the place. Another way of describing it is uniformitarianism. That is, everything's uniform. It stays the same. It's set. It's not going to change. It's been that way from antiquity. It'll continue to be that way on into the future. And so he's not coming, guys. That's what these scoffers are saying. Look, it's always been this way. The fathers are dead now. Abraham's gone. They're gone. It's the same as it was when they left. People come. People go. They die. And everything keeps rolling on. He will not come again. What's this promise? He's not going to come again. Now, if you just listen to that argument and you think your life is defined by the little cycle that you've been able to witness, one might believe in a naturalistic explanation that things just kind of go along as they've been designed. But beware of this kind of naturalistic thinking because it's not actually historically accurate. Because supernatural has happened and it's noted in history for many, many years and the scripture itself defines and declares many times where the natural order is interrupted by the divine. So when we define naturalism, don't define it as outside of God's providential dealing, just something that sets in motion or is set in motion and just goes naturally and nothing supernatural happens. That would in itself be a denial of history. And that's exactly the argument 
that is going to be used by Peter. But before we go further, I would just say to us as a body, it's fair and accurate to ask someone who's teaching two really important questions in order to understand whether you can trust them or not. One, what is your view of Scripture? Now, the problem is many people will say words that we like. They'll say it's inspired, it's authoritative. Uh, Yes, it's the Word of God. But the follow-up question I would begin asking is, do you believe in the bodily return of Jesus Christ? Because that would then show you what they think Scripture says. Well, I don't know about literally, but you know, he comes when people are really kind. That's his way of coming to earth. And that's not what I'm asking. You believe he'll bodily come again. And that gives you indications to whether the view of Scripture is actually accurate. And it's totally fair if you ask me of that, uh, that of me or any teacher you hear proclaiming the word of God. But notice the argument that Peter responds with in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, the scoffers, that is, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's saying the world was around for a long time. God spoke it into existence. He created it in the way he created it. Much of those particulars are mysterious to us. But we know from the Genesis account that he created it all. And it's old, and yeah, there's a certain order that goes to it. But recognize that that order was interrupted in a very historical way when God judged the earth with a flood. That's historical, he says. And even those scoffers in that day, there was, you know, there were flood epics throughout all the different peoples, not just those who were Jewish people. There, there was note and record of a historical flood that had gone through many of the generations of people. And so he's saying, historically, you know that's not true. There was a miraculous flood that happened. All peoples acknowledge that somewhere in their history, And so you're saying that it's just naturalistic, it just goes on the way it is. I'm saying that's not true. This is one argument he can use, but we can use several others, can't we, brothers and sisters? Look at the Old Testament. How many times does he tell a prophet, I will judge the Assyrians, and then he does it? Look at Isaiah. Look at what Joel says. Look what Malachi forecasts. And look what then happens in the intertestamental period. When Jesus says, I'll rise again, and the third day he rises again. That's historical, supernatural activity that's happened. More attestation than almost any other historical event we just take for granted. So it's true that supernatural activity is part of history. It's natural in the sense that God is the God of nature. So that's the argument that Peter responds with. He doesn't just let the professor of the college say it without challenging him. And don't anyone here let him either. What do you mean? History has always gone on the way it is. We have record of these things not going exactly the way you describe it. In fact, I love what John Piper says when he's preaching about this idea of naturalism, meaning apart from God's providential guidance. He says that the laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty for real. And if he should choose to raise his voice, the cataclysm would come. That's the proper view of naturalism. That God is, he's in in all of it. He's moving all of it, superintending over it, supervising it. He's not just sitting back like the clockmaker watching the clock run. His providential dealing is through it all. Nature functions because of the providential hand of God. And this reaction to this by Peter is gives us good model for how we can react to such criticism as well. Yes, Christ will come. We've seen supernatural activity before, and we'll surely see it again. Finally, I would like to point out in verses 7 through 9, with regard to the Lord's coming, Recognize God's plan for judgment and perspective on time as it's displayed here in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says, But by the same word the heavens and the earth that, uh, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So first we see, regarding his plan, that God will judge the ungodly, both now and later. 
Uh, this is a, a tricky phrase as you do a study of it. The day of the Lord or the day of judgment, the day of God or the day of visitation. And Peter uses three of these terms. They all are biblical phrases that speak to a special divine judgment that happens in history. I alluded to some in the prophets and one that is forecasted here for us. Uh, I'll give you an example. Isaiah 13.1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. So the day of the Lord in that context is that immediate coming of the Lord in judgment. Though it always appears in some kind of singular form, the day of judgment, it refers to a period of prophetically announced divine wrath against God's enemies. When the Babylonians were, were punished, it wasn't just for 24 hours, it was an epoch of time, the day of the Lord. And this is what is referred to here. Not a single day, but an epic of judgment. In this particular passage, I think, is referring to the ultimate judgment of the inhabitants of earth before Christ sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Still, we must recognize that God can and does come to judge temporarily, in short order, in times that he chooses. But ultimately, ultimately, it forecasts his final judgment. And it says his final judgment by fire. That he'll bring fire. And there's differences of opinion about what will happen. But I tend to think that God will recreate this earth and give us a new heaven, a new earth, where you'll have your bodies and you'll be sort of like the garden was before. This is the best I could put together. And I'm not dogmatic about the particulars, but that's what he's going to come to do. And he's going to really do it. God who spoke the world into existence and created the very forces of nature that we have witnessed even on this earth in our time, this certainly is not a problem for him when he comes. And please notice, it's a one-time event. He comes and he does this. Uh, there may be build-up that can be recognizable, but the ultimate truth is that he comes and he does this the final time. Also notice in verse 8 that God works according to his own timetable and perspective of the same. It's so important for us interpretively and just in recognizing that God is sovereign over time and what he, how he views time. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The bottom line here, time is of no consequence to an eternal God. One of the several perfections of God is his eternality. He always was. What's a day or a month or a year or, uh, or a millennium for one who always has been? You know, we think of time in terms of our relative lifespan, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, if we're really blessed. But those are nothing to God. They're, they're just, they come and they go. So just because he doesn't come in our time or in our perspective does not mean he's in any way slow. In fact, this is an exact quote from Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it passed, or as a watch in the night. We have to be careful to allow for God's otherness. His perception and view of time is an example where we have trouble relating. It's been 2,000 years since Christ descended. But to God, that's like that. It's that fast. He, he's not biting his nails, waiting for the next thing to happen. He's not impatient. To him, it's, it's like that. He will come, and he will come quickly. Quickly is relative to our eternal God. And 2,000 years is mighty fast for an eternal God. Also notice, and finally, as an observation in verse 9, what seems like slowness should be understood as patience in gathering his people to himself. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient 
towards you. Remember who he's talking to here. That's important to understanding what's being said. Towards you. He's talking to the church now. He's talking to the beloved, as he says four times in this, in this section. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- reach repentance. One of God's perfections is his eternality, for sure. Another is his gracious patience. Think of his determination in Genesis to judge the world by a flood. Have you ever done the math from the time he declares he's going to no longer strive with man and the time he actually brings the flood? Hundreds of years. He is sure to judge, but he's very patient in the process. Always has been. He moves slowly so that all his sheep might be gathered into the fold. And that's an important understanding to correctly Interpret verse 9. Not wishing, or some versions say, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If one is consistent with the context of this verse, the meaning is very clear. If, however, as the verse is so often taken out of context, particularly verse 9, if it's quoted out of context, one could argue for some kind of universalism, that he's not willing that any should actually perish. So that means everybody's saved. Well, let's just look at this for a moment and test whether that can be true based on the context. First, let's look at verse 9. Who is he writing to? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward who? You, not wishing that any should perish. Well, who is you referring to? Well, back in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, the church. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. Not the whole world, but the people there gathered to hear the reading of the epistle, the people of God, the beloved. That's who he's talking about. You refers to the members of the church at very most, but not every person on earth without distinction. That's not what it means. And also notice in verse 1 of the chapter, this is the second letter I'm writing. What's the first letter? First Peter. You know how he addresses them in the first Peter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. So, when we come to a verse that he's not wishing that any should perish, he's not espousing universalism. He's saying he's not willing that one of his sheep would perish. John Gill says it well, that there might be time for the gathering of his elect among them by his angels or apostles and ministers sent into several parts of Judea so that none of them might perish, but be brought to faith and repentance. Calvin echoes this thought, a reason why the last day does not come so soon, because God patiently waits until all the elect are brought to repentance, that none of them may perish. So when he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, he's talking about those who are his people. If I said to you, are we all here? Right now, if I said to you all, are we all here? Is everyone here? Would you think I meant all of Kansas City? No, you would think I mean the members and attenders of Redeemer. You would know in the universe of discourse that I'm talking to you what all means, what any means. And that's what we have in this passage. In fact, this becomes one of the most powerful evidences for Christ's particular redemption when you read it in this way and understand what it's saying in context. Perfect redemption. Not one will be lost. All will be saved. Again, you can see, growing in grace and knowledge, help us then with Christ's return. Help us look forward to Christ's return. In fact, we should stop thinking about Christ's return in the way it's sometimes portrayed. It's sometimes portrayed like, you better get everything just right, everybody. You've ever heard this one? You better get those magazines off your coffee table. And if Jesus came right now, what would it be like? And you're scared to death that he's coming. Listen, I got a lot of stuff that I, I need taken away, and that's why I want him to come. To get it to totally clean me up from all that stuff. 
So instead of looking at as scared, you know, as people of God being scared of their Savior coming, it's we should just can't wait for our Savior to come to give us complete cleanness in Him. To, to change us for finals. I don't struggle with this stuff anymore. A total different look. I was at the airport not too long ago, and I was uh, getting ready. I waited out, outside after I checked in my stuff. Didn't want to go into the gate area Kansas City. You know how it is. Once you're in, you're in. So I just waited uh, out in the hall, and I saw a, a lady there with two little children, and they had little balloons, and they had a little uh, sign, Daddy was coming back from Iraq. And they had been gone uh, 16 months. And one of the kids was like three years old, so I'm sure, you know, how old was the child? And they were just beaming. They couldn't, I wish I could have seen the plane come when, they, when, when the father came. I had to go before that. But that look on their faces, those little kids' faces, and that wife, that's what we ought to look like about Jesus coming again. It's just filled with anticipation, filled with not the bad stuff that will happen when he sees this or that, but rather, he's my Savior and he's here. This is what Peter's trying to encourage us with. He is coming. He is coming, and we can rest in this, and it empowers us. It empo- I can't wait till he comes. can't wait to see him. I hope it's the same for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for just how it, it just points to the most important thing, and that is Jesus, and it is Christ coming. And Lord, I pray that we would rest upon him, that we would long for him. And Lord, if we are here, sitting here, and we are not looking forward to his coming, convict us as to why. Lord, draw us to him. Make us trust in him. We have to have you do this for us, O Lord. And we praise you for this. Lord, I pray that we would be a body that is expectant, looking forward to the Savior's return, and is living our lives and conducting our our ministry with that kind of expectation. And Lord, we think of the new heavens and the new earth being created, and we can't even conceive of how great that will be. Lord, we long for your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.